This is Hal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. Well, we are in Romans chapter 2 this morning in our series on transformation. Romans chapter 2. If you want to open your Bibles and turn that way, open your app and turn that way. You know, over the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about this uh, primarily from the focus of looking at a new creation, about the newness of how God is making things, all things new, uh, that we are part of that new creation, of the transformative power and His work of the gospel in the the new creation. And, um, you know, since the Reformation, the primary way that we have looked at the book of Romans and how we've studied Romans has been all through the lens of personal salvation, of the, the salvation of the individual. And while that is a significant, very significant part of the book of Romans, it is not the totality of what is written in the book of Romans. And so when we do that, when we hyper-focus on that one part, we miss out on the, some of the bigger picture. We miss out on some of the greater message that is there. And so in no way are we like saying that that is a lesser subject. We're just simply saying it is a part of the big subject of all all that Paul is talking about. And so we're trying to look, step back and get a good look at Romans uh, through this larger lens of the transformative power of God at work in the world to, and, and, and its ability to work in us, through us, not only for the salvation of our souls, but more so for our uh, work in the world, in his new creation, and that how the entire cosmos is longing for this day in which it will be revealed, longing for the day in which all of this will unfold. And so it is very significant to our understanding and to our appreciation of this grand message that Paul is writing to these Roman Christians. Now, as Paul opens this chapter, it begins with a little segue from chapter 1. Remember, this would have really been all one large context, right? I mean, they're reading a single letter, and so Romans 1 and 2, there wouldn't have been, you know, like three weeks in getting to the end of it. They would have just read it, and we would have heard it and seen it in that context. Uh, And it would have been very specific to their situation. As we're looking at it, we're watching as this... Segway happens. He was all in chapter one. There's a, a diatribe, if you will, on the universal condition of humanity, the, the great need of humanity, the fallenness of creation, and how that impacts all of creation, not just us, but all of it, and the, the effects of that. Now, here in this chapter, he's going to shift, and it's not because it's so technical in the Greek, because you can pick it up in the English. He moves from the third person plural, a big grand we and, and kind of inclusive, to a second person singular as if to confront an imaginary opponent. Now, there's lots of theories on who that imaginary opponent might be. Could have been Saul of Tarsus, who Paul was before, and dealing with kind of his uh, attitude toward other people, specifically toward Gentiles. It could be a collective we or a, 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 somebody representing the, the scribes and the Pharisees in some way. Uh, it, it could be a number of possibilities. Uh, The only thing he really tells us is that it's someone who is sitting in judgment of others. And so we're going to take a look at that. But what he does throughout this chapter is he's going to vindicate God's action upon sin to his imaginary appointment. He's going to explain why God does what he does, uh, why God is good and just and right in the face of, uh, uh, of all of what's happening in the creation. And at the same time, he's going to hold out hope because of God's kindness and God's mercy, that mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over what is justly deserved. And here he paints the picture that because God is patient, that he leaves room, time and opportunity for everyone to change the direction, that is repent and to join him. He's also reminding them, in particular the Jewish reader, that just as Jews have been preeminent in salvation, 
They would also then be preeminent in judgment. The idea that judgment begins with the household of God. We might say it here to us in that more specific way as Christians that it begins with the household of faith. It is this sense in which that our, our status as God's people does not, it does not uh, uh, vindicate all of our bad behavior or anything else, but instead that what we know uh, about what is right and true is not only seen uh, in the Word of God, but, and in, but also in nature, but specifically because we do have the revelation of God, that there is an expectation that we would follow hard after in pursuit, that there's an expectation that it has called us to be standard bearers and a light in the world. And so Paul repeats his call upon the Jews not to think highly of their position, but, then, but actually to put, the, or to put their trust in some kind of ethnicity, but to put their trust in Christ alone and to recognize the high calling that has come with their being the possessors of the law. With that said, let's take a look at Romans chapter 2, beginning in using a cell phone or tablet. Please set that to silent for the sake of those around you. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. Please follow along in whatever translation you have. The one in your lap is always my favorite. Let's take a look. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we read these words. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and the forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, and while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve of what is excellent because you were instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in uh, the law, dishonor God by breaking the law, for it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision is, indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is circum uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? 
then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. So there is a, a huge struggle, you know, in the church historically over the issues of uh, judgment and judgmentalism. I mean, you know, just a simple perusal, right, of, of the writings of Paul, or even if we look in the Gospels, I mean, there, there is the evidence that we, we can see rather quickly that there are indications that we are not to judge, and then there's other times in which we're told to judge rightly. And, and so there's this tension where we go back and forth in those things as if God, as if Jesus, as if the Apostle Paul has contradicted himself somehow, and then we're like lost in the confusion of it. And I wish I could tell you that I could just simply point you to a couple of Greek words that would solve all your quandary. But just like in English, nope. Same word. The indication there then is from the context about what the difference between judging rightly and being judgmental is all about. Judgmental is whenever we look upon someone to cast dispersions on them rather than in a sense of loving concern for the other person and making a right judgment. I make a right judgment when I look in the mirror and say, hey, you aren't doing what you know is right to do and to begin to think through how do I, how am I transformed? What am I doing to bring myself into line uh, relationship with God to allow his transformative power to work in me? And so things like our spiritual disciplines and such are things that help me to deal with the fleshly desires, with the passions of my heart, and to bring them into submission quiet long enough for me to hear the Spirit of God and allow the Spirit of God to begin to work in me. Those behaviors do not necessarily make me good. We talked about this last week. Fasting does not make you a, a good person or a better person. In fact, I've been around some of you. If you've been around me and been when I have been what we call hangry, they invented that word just for me. Because if I don't eat whenever I need to eat, I get hangry. And so there, but there is a discipline of fasting in which where I am dealing with the passions of my flesh, the creature, and I'm bringing that voice into submission to the voice of God so that I can hear God. It's not that I'm earning brownie points with God by fasting. It's not that I'm earning brownie points with God by reading the Bible more. Uh, because, listen, I know people who read their Bibles continually, can quote them ver verbatim, but are mean is snake oil. Do you know what I'm saying? I had a Bible professor who shall remain nameless because it's on video. But I remember he used to play a game with us and we would quote a Bible verse in any translation and he would quote back the verse before it and after it, always in the same version. But he knew what the other version said. He knew his Bible so well you could quote a Bible verse and he could quote the one before it and after it verbatim in his translation. And can I just tell you, that was one of the meanest men I've ever met in my whole life. He referred to preaching a series of messages as siege gun preaching, where you mow people down with the truth. Real sweet guy. <laughs> um, but I did learn a lot from him because he was, he was really sharp. Uh, he was a good, he was a serious student of the word. But my, my point just simply being is that spiritual disciplines do not immediately make me a better person. That's the, and, and every religious and, and every philosoph school of philosophy has its own disciplines that people think that by practicing them they're gonna become a better person and it doesn't happen. And so when people in the Christian church, we just start practicing disciplines without a context, then the problem is we just end up really good at doing religious things but no, do not grow in our relationship with him, and that's, that's just religiosity. Sometimes in the growing in those disciplines or becoming really good at doing religious things, then that can tend to lead towards a sense of superiority in which we feel comfortable in looking down on other people. 
Now, in the case of Judaism, one, uh, so, some of the things that, uh, about Judaism that stood out to them as being the markers of their uh, relationship with God was first and foremost that they were the keepers of the law. Now, when I say that as the keepers of the law, I do not mean the ones who keep the law in all of its details. That's often where we get into the weeds here in the book of Romans about law keeping. And we're not talking about law keeping in the sense of doing a quantitative things. So in the Greco-Roman mindset, when we talk about righteousness, what we mean by righteousness in Greco-Roman world, uh, worldview is the idea that I do this and I'm righteous. I do A and I'm righteous. I do B and I'm righteous. I do C and I'm righteous. If I don't do A, B, and C, I'm not righteous. Conversely, if I, don't do, if I don't do X, then I'm righteous. If I don't do Y, I'm righteous. If I don't do Z, I'm righteous. So we begin to develop a mindset uh, of, of kind of a works-oriented mentality uh, when we misunderstand what they're talking about with regard to keeping the law and where we're keeping score on a sheet. And we then conclude at the end of the day that, you know, well, I did A, B, and C, and I, I didn't do X and Y, but I did do Z, and I'm just like, oh, you know, maybe does that... You know, am I, is that more righteous or less righteous? And if you view yourself through that lens, uh, I can tell you that it will be a terrible taskmaster. It will be something that will cause you to, one, have a really hard time praying for other people, especially if you, you feel like that God wants to do something in them and for them, and you will sit, sit there and think to yourself, who am I to pray over them? Who am I to ask God for healing? Who am I to ask God to... Uh, uh, to uh, rescue them. Who am I to ask God those things? And the enemy will definitely stand over your shoulder and go, you're right. You're a horribly, I saw what you, you know what you did. You know when that person walked by the thoughts you had in your mind. <laughs> and that's why most of us rather talk about the gospel than pray or engage with the gospel. And so this whole qualitative versus quantitative type of thing. Quantitative is where I just, I'm keeping score. Qualitative in the Hebraic mind is the idea that righteousness exists in the relationship. It is a right relationship. It is not that I am righteous by the things I do. For instance, if today I was to preach to you about the issues of sexual purity and about sexual and having a good sexual ethic. And so then you walk out of this place and you say to yourself, well, I am never going to do these things again. I'm not going to have sex outside of marriage. I'm not going to, you know, cheat on my wife. I'm not going to, you know, and you do all those things. Well, that's good. I'm glad that you made that conclusion, but, but that in itself does not make you righteous. It just means you agree with the things that the law says, but it also agrees with the things that we know from nature. In fact, most of the world will like understand. If you say some of those things, they'll go, well, I don't agree with that one, but I do agree with that one. And, and we have standards of ethics, of behavior. Uh, you know, even the, the most pagan of people will say things like, you know, well, wow, they're kind of loose or something, you know, right? Judging people based on a natural ethic. So just because we do something in the moment, qualitatively, this is righteous, this isn't righteous, this is, and then we add up the score at the end of the day and try to determine if we're righteous, the answer is no, your righteousness is as filthy rags, that's referring to a woman's rags, during her period, your righteousness is, is about as pure as that. Ugh. Today we have the nice little paper things and all. No. Nasty. Your righteousness is nasty. Because it never gets beyond that. The reality is, is that no matter how many times I add things up, the answer at the end of the score is... Zero, not a nil. You, you, you can't do it. And so in Hebraic righteousness, the idea is, is I'm in a right relationship. And so there is the pursuit of the relationship and that he is the one who makes the standard. He is the one who sets it right. So even though this is what is the right things to do and the law clearly articulates what is good, what is pure, what is noble, and all those things, that you and I are not made righteous by the keeping of that law, but by being in the relationship with the one who gives the law. 
In that sense of relationship then, I exist in a place of righteousness. That's why that God can declare you righteous even as you are still struggling in the relationship and growing in your relationship and your understanding. I would submit to you that, for instance, when uh, uh, you lead somebody to Christ, uh, they are not instantly like everything good, right? Like one of the things I know in leading someone to Christ, maybe who's had an issue with addiction, is that, just, that you know, in the number of people I've led to Christ over the years who were struggling with addiction, I can name on one hand the number of people who are just like instantly came out of that addiction and had no more struggle with it. One person comes really strongly to mind that I, I remember it just was absolutely like overnight didn't have another struggle. Stunning. But by far and away, the number of people I have led to Christ who were in the midst of addiction, like one of the things that happened is that on their way, now they, are, they spent sometimes months or years in the battle against the flesh. And some of them never completely escaped it to the day that they passed from this life. But they wanted so desperately to overcome that. And they had a deep abiding love of Jesus. And I could see his work at work in them. I could see that God was changing them and, and that their, the depth of their relationship. And so they walked mostly free, but at times they would like stumble again. And, and I would find myself going to places to pick them up and sometimes off the floor. And sometimes I got to clean up the vomit in the process. Hello? And yet, here's what I know is I believe those persons that they were righteous not because they did everything perfectly, but because they were in the right relationship with Him who is always right, always just, always good, always pure. That is what it means to be in, 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 in righteousness in the Hebraic sense. It's not the, it's not the quantitative it's the quality, it's the relationship, it's being in there with Him so that even though we are not perfect, we're in a right relationship with Him. Now, in this whole thing, He begins to talk to us about the, the, uh, the onlooker, the person who's standing outside and who's passing judgment. That's actually how He identifies them. Like I said, some people have wondered if it was Saul of Tarsus, you know, his old self that He's talking about, or whomever else. But whoever this person is, uh, is this person who he, he identifies as you who pass judgment, but do the same things yourselves. And so there's this sense in which they are looking at the person and they see everything wrong in their life and he is challenging them on their assumptions about the way that they are relating to God, about the way that they are relating and viewing other people. I think it's important for you and I, especially if we grew up in the church, like sometimes, like, you know, we're quick to like, blame the Pharisees, the scribes, and things like that for their viewpoint, forgetting that the people who are probably most in danger of that today are not the scribes and the Pharisees, but those who grew up in the church. Or you've been a Christian long enough that you've forgotten what it's like to be on the outside looking in, right? And, and, and especially when we're watching new babes in Christ, and we watch them in their struggles and, and, and things, and to remember that they too are righteous on the same grounds that we are righteous, even though they stumble in many ways, even as we do ourselves. So Paul is, is talking to them in the, in the case of this thing, and he says, you who pass judgment, uh, you know, uh, and, and he's looking at someone who's kind of sitting there in a smug sense. Uh, well, we're the bearers of the law, the keepers of the law. Uh, we are the chosen race, uh, and we're circumcised. So that makes us stand out. And, and certainly, I mean, in terms of uh, the ancient uh, uh, Near Eastern culture and thing like that, it would have definitely been a standout kind of thing to be circumcised. Um, you know, uh, in the United States a number of years ago, it was fairly common practice to just circumcise babies when they were born there in the hospital, uh, argument for health issues, things like that. Um, Understanding is, I think now, it's kind of scattered. Some places do still do circumcisions uh, automatically. Some don't. When we were living in Canada, it was like viewed as like the most horrible thing. How, why would you do that to your child? You know, um, 
So the, the changing opinions in terms of the, the health issues and things like that. But for the Jew, it was this uh, real sense of that, uh, the constant sense of identity that you had. Now, I don't want to be crude, but I just want you to think just you know, logically with me for a moment that there would, you know, for the average male in the covenant, uh, there would be reminders several times of day that you're in covenant. Right? I mean, if you just go to the, every time you go to the bathroom, there should be a reminder that you are different than everybody else. That, that there is something that, that you have agreed to. You are in a relationship that is different than all other relationships. It also would explain a high degree of their sense of the, the sexual ethic of the Jews versus the Gentile world would have stood out so much because there is no way that you can engage in sexual acts as a Jewish man and not be aware of the covenant relationship that you have with God. It's right there. If you're doing what's wrong, guess what you're doing it with? Hello? So I'm not trying to be crude, but sometimes we miss points like this because we just, just you know, we're so sensitive. Oh my gosh, we're so oversensitive. But realistically, I want you to, th- I mean, like, you just, you don't just put that anywhere. Hello? And it's reminding you that you're in covenant relationship. I guarantee you it was part of why they had such a strong sexual ethic. On the other hand, when they violated that ethic, like, you can't tell me they didn't know, Right? And so there's a sense of, uh, of this uh, uh, outward symbolism of their righteousness, of how they were different than all the other people. And so he's saying that in this case, that there's a sense of smugness on the part of this person, whoever that person is. He doesn't name anybody by name. Like I said, it, it could have been his own past smugness. It could be uh, some of the Jewish Christians in the Roman church. I don't know exactly. I would guess that there are probably some issues with that in that church because he's written them this letter and opens his letter there, right? Kind of a tough way to start out the letter, if you ask me. And so he's putting this out there as kind of the essence of what it means to be judgmental rather than judging rightly. That you would recognize that you, you know, are not righteous in and of yourself. And then there's this other issue of God's righteous judgment being executed by, you know, on all. And so there's the expectation that someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is a day coming of judgment in which uh, everything will be laid bare and made evident to what is right, what is not right. Uh, everything will be clarified. And he says, you know, do not think that you who look over there smugly at everyone else, that everything's okay just because you aren't suffering the consequences of judgment in the moment. There is a day coming in which God will judge whether you have experienced that judgment or not. Believe it or not, this is one of the things I have found as a pastor is often like a conversation that I've had to have with people who are deeply steeped in sin as believers. They will think that because there hasn't been any immediate consequences to their action, that maybe somehow God is being permissive with them and allowing them, or that maybe God doesn't have a problem with them doing it. As if like, you, you know, if I put my hand in the cookie jar, and I steal the cookie, and I put my hand in the cookie jar again, and I steal another cookie, that I didn't actually steal anything. Because nobody reached over and slapped my hand. And there's a lot of Christians who are living in that kind of mentality in which they think it's okay. Well, I've stuck my hand in the cookie jar, nothing happened. I've continued to live ways that I know were outside of the, the, the desire of God, I, uh, whether that was uh, se- sexually, uh, you know, or uh, in terms of my finances or whatever else. If we don't immediately get the slap down, then somehow we justify in our hearts and our minds that God must not be all that upset about it And so we continue the behavior of 
not living in right relationship. I don't mean just the doing of bad things. I'm not talking about the quantitative. I'm talking about qualitatively. We begin to develop a, a thought process where we relate to God in such a way, I don't know, maybe we actually think that God agrees with us about how amazing we are. We believe our own press. And he says, you who ought to be the, blind, the guide to the blind, just because you didn't get stung when you put your hand in the cookie jar doesn't mean that you're righteous. If you conduct yourself in such a way that you have flaunted the, the ways, the, you've flaunted the law, you've gone against everything that you know is good and right and true, then there is a relational issue. It's no longer about the keeping of the law uh, in terms of the qu uh, quantitative. It's the fact that you have just like divorced yourself from the relationship. You're saying that it doesn't matter how I relate to God. That's not righteous. And so he's calling them up on this. And he says, listen, Look, everybody does the right thing sometimes. And he points to what nature tells us, right? So we, if someone behaves rightly according to nature, he says they become a law unto themselves, but that same law unto themselves also condemns them when they do the wrong thing. And you can't just put enough pluses and minuses together to come up righteous. Whether you are out in the world, and it's the revelation of nature, or whether you are under the Torah, under the law, and that to be true. Either way, your conscience condemns you, or, or, or I should say, the weight of what is good and right versus what is wrong will condemn you, even if you don't know the law. It will tell you when you are doing right. It will also tell you when you're doing wrong. But here's the issue, is that without the right relationship, all the pluses and minuses don't mean a whole lot. So that both Gentile and Jew stand under the same condemnation. If you're thinking it's by keeping everything in the right column, you stand condemned. You're no longer operating in relationship. You are operating under the law and it will condemn. Can I just point out that here's the thing that is, is important. Paul is not attacking the law. At no point in this text does he ever say that the law is bad. In fact, you and I could point to things like Psalm 19 that says that the law of good, the law of God is good, rejoicing the heart. The very nature of the law is good. It points to what is right and what is good. When the law condemns us, it is not because the law is bad, it is because we were being bad, right? Paul doesn't have any issues with the law. Paul doesn't have any issues with living in accordance with the law. Paul was not worried that they might somehow keep the law. Never does he make that argument. He doesn't say, uh-oh, you guys are keeping the law. You know, we're saved by grace. He doesn't say that. Don't make him say something he didn't say. Don't use your theology to twist Paul's words into something to justify your theology. You go looking for something, you'll find it. Paul was worried that they were outwardly conforming to things, but were inwardly as rotten to the core as any other person. See, here's the thing. When I first fell in love with my wife, I, I've told you this story a number of times. Some of you are probably getting tired of hearing it, but you know, my, I know my wife isn't getting tired of it, so, you know. <laughs> Sorry, anyhow. Um, but when I first fell in love with my wife, I didn't know anything about sewing. I, I, I mean, I, you know, I could get a button on. I mean, that was about it. I wasn't completely incompetent. I'd have to get married so someone could take care of me. I don't mean that. But, but I just didn't know anything about sewing. I didn't, I didn't care about sewing in any way, shape, or form. And then as I discovered that my wife was the seamstress for the, you know, the, for the costumes at the, on the campus for the theater, I like got really, I got to learn a lot about sewing. I got really good with irons and things like that. And, you know, I, I learned a whole lot. And, and why? Not because my wife said, well, if you're in right relationship with me, you'll learn how to hem. That never crossed my mind. 
didn't cross her mind. No, I was in love with her and I wanted to spend time with her and I knew that these things were valuable to her and they became a part of my life because I was, I was becoming a part of her life. We were in relationship. I learned a whole lot about, I didn't care a thing about Volvos. Can I just be honest? But my wife drove a little 1975 Volvo and it was constantly needing tinkering. And I would see her out there all the time. I could see those tennis shoes hanging out underneath that. I knew she was working on her car. And I would come over and talk to her while she was working on her car. I learned a lot about Volvos that I never cared about before. Not because she ever said to me, well, if you don't know about Volvos, you're not a very good person. She might have thought it, but no, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. We don't drive any Volvos now. So, you know, but, but listen, here's the thing is I learned about Volvos, not because I had to learn about Volvos, but because I wanted to spend time with her, get to know her. I was building a relationship. And the overflow of that was that I got really good at how to work on Volvos so that when we had them later on, like I knew what to tell the mechanic about different things and about little quirks about them. I've learned a whole lot about sewing. I can still tell you a number of things about sewing. I've cut out a lot of patterns over the years, all because I was in deeply in love with my wife and still am. I learned all of that, not because I was trying to prove anything, but because I wanted to identify with her. Righteousness, in the biblical sense, in the Hebraic sense, grows out of relationship. When I am in such hot pursuit of God that I want to be like Him, and that transformative power goes to work in me, and then when it puts its finger on things that are destructive, on the things that cause problems in the relationship, instead of going, well, I want that more than I want you, I go, well, then those things need to go. And I use those things that we call spiritual disciplines to bring my flesh into submission where I can hear the voice of God and I can lean into his power and he can begin to work in me to will and to want, to know and to do his good, pleasing, and perfect will. It is the transformative power of God that is at work in those things. It's not because I fasted and got cranky and hungry. Because I know that I'm not a better person just because I don't eat. Hello? I know that I'm not a better person just because I give everything I have away. Because if I sit there and look at what I wish I had, or if I'm coveting what everybody else has, that's, you missed the point. If I read my Bible like my professor, and I know it by heart, but I don't know the one by heart and whom wrote it and spoke it to me to give me life, it is empty words. Or worse yet, it becomes a form of religiosity that feels safe looking down its nose at other people and sitting in condemnation of them, especially, especially those Gentiles who have recently become Greeks. See, maybe in your world it's not Greeks, but okay, they've recently become a Christian, right? The Gentile who's recently converted to Christianity, and if I've been walking with the Lord a long time, and, and I already uh, I know some things, and I've developed, I know how to make my way through the religious culture that we call church, and I know how to say the right things, dress the right way, sit in the right places, don't bring up things whenever you're not supposed to, like religion and politics and wrong places and things like that, and I learn all this, and then I outwardly look like I'm something, but inside, inside I'm not really any different. Part of it is the proof that I'm so willing to condemn the other person. It's not that there's not a right judgment. The scripture calls on us again and again to make right judgment. But right judgment begins from the place in my heart in which I want you to have that same right relationship that I have. I want you to be in a covenant relationship. I also want those, the overflow, the benefit of those 
of living righteously to flow in your life so that you experience freedom, so that you experience victory, so that you experience the, the in, empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, so that you can see the gospel lift at work in your own life, and also so that you have the power to endure the difficult and trying things that life brings you because you are not exempt as a Christian, right? The rain falls on the just and the unjust. The sun shines on the just and the unjust. And so it's not that you and I don't have all those same trials, difficulties, and circumstances that everyone else has, but I want you to know the power of Christ rising within in the face of those circumstances. If I see in you where you are departing from right relationship, where you are beginning to harden your heart, or you're pursuing things that will lead you and lead your heart far astray from him, and I come to you in that attitude because I love and care about you, then I am giving you the opportunity to escape from that which is taking your heart captive and leading you astray. That is a whole different attitude than sitting over here in judgment of somebody and going, you know, we don't do things like that. Oh, really? But you know the difference because you know when someone does it to you. Right? When someone like says something to you like, well, you shouldn't be doing that. What rises up within you? Mm-hmm. You know, when my kids were little, they loved Calvin and Hobbes. My favorite Calvin and Hobbes, you know, and, and my youngest son, Matthew, looked like Calvin, so anyhow, um, and had the same personality. But um, uh, just kidding, Matt. Um, uh, but in all seriousness, one of my favorite cartoons for reminding me of me was where Calvin was sitting in a stool in the corner and he said, on the outside I'm sitting, but on the inside I am standing. Ever been there? Ever been sitting on the outside and on the inside you're standing? He says that, that's the attitude that he's coming against in the way that this is, is leading them astray and leading them far away from a sense of relationship and, and then in a way has given them permission to continue to conduct themselves badly all the while telling themselves how good and righteous they are because they have the right pedigree. They have the right attention. Maybe they have the right name over their church door. Maybe they have the right form of doctrine or they have the right form of baptism or they have the right form of, uh, of practicing communion or they have the right form of how we do church, what Bible we read and all these other kind of uh, outward things. In other words, just like the Jew who said, well, I'm Jewish, I'm circumcised and we have the law, therefore... Nothing else really matters. But can I tell you, it, it darn sure do matter. Because righteousness ought to be the overflow of the heart that is settled on Him. In my hot pursuit of Him, transformation, the transformative power of God is working to set me free from the things that hold me captive. So I do believe that by far and away that, that my friends who are struggling with addiction will begin to see breakthrough and they'll, they'll be overcoming. I don't mean that they won't ever have a struggle. I don't mean that they won't ever have a problem. But I guarantee you that the power of Christ at work in them will begin them on a path and a journey. And as they are hotly in pursuit of God, look, should they live long enough? Should they outlive their addiction? Unfortunately, some were taken by it. But even if they don't, I know that with their eyes, they will see God. And, and you know what? Can I just tell you, that's true of every area in our lives. But if we have an attitude in which it doesn't matter, that's not right relationship. See, the problem won't be of what you do. The problem will be of not being in that right relationship in the first place that gave you the permission to behave however you darn well felt like. But when I'm in right relationship, when I am relating to him who is the lover of my soul and I love him back, 
It becomes the opening of the door for his transformative power to work in me, to will and to want and to become that kind of person that he longs for, that he hopes for, that he knew that when he created me, I could be. Not because I will do everything right. But I'll sure be in hot pursuit of him. Likewise, if I reduce everything down to the keeping of rules, whether the law or by nature or anything else, and I don't relate to him, no matter how many times I, no matter how many things I do right, no matter how great my pharisaical righteousness, no matter how great my ability to keep track of everything, at the end of the day that that law whether it is God's law or natural law, it will condemn me. It will point out the fallacy of my thinking, the foolishness of my heart, and my failure to relate to Him who loves me. Paul wants the onlooker to no longer sit in judgment of his, their Gentile uh, uh, former Gentile believers that were in their midst. Because see, there's only one family of God, whether Jew or Gentile. There's only one family of God. There is only one God who is God over all, in all, and through all, and over all. And it is He that we must relate to. It is in that right relationship with Him where we find life and life abundant and the transformative power to change our lives and to, to lead us into this new place. See, it's not in circumcision or baptism although I would say both are of great value. See, that Jew that was circumcised was speaking about the heart of what they believed in, just like when a person is baptized into Christ. They are making a statement to the whole world, I am dying to self to live for Him. It's powerful in context. Meaningless if it's just getting your head wet. And over and over again, listen, the law of God is good. You know, Christians all the time being worried about whether or not we have the Ten Commandments on the lawn over at the courthouse. Can I just give you a challenge? If you don't know those Ten Commandments yourself and they're not in your heart, I wouldn't bother telling everybody else to put them on the courthouse steps. I think you condemn yourself. Those, those Ten Commandments are awesome when they're written here. So Paul wasn't turning his back on the fundamentals of Jewish self-understanding or identity. What he was affirming to the Jew first, but also for the Greek, was that God wants to relate to us in a right way and the driving the driving of that relationship was not in the things that how well we do, but how good he is. Amen. That is the benefit. All right. With that said, let's stand together, shall we? I, I hope what you heard in all of that, you know, is not anything against effort. I think effort is important. See, the gospel is against the idea of you earning it by your own keeping of the pluses and minuses. But it is not resistant to effort. The gospel is not resistant to effort. In fact, I would tell you that as we look through these chapters, that you're going to see again and again that there is a call to action on our part to, to actually intentionally grow in our relationship with him, to know him more, to practice those disciplines uh, so that we are able to know and do his good, pleasing, and perfect will. There's nothing wrong with effort. It's the idea that you and I would earn something that is so uh, vile. Because at the end of the day, whether Jew or Gentile, Jew or Greek, we ought to know that there is no way 
for us to keep track of everything that we do, say, and think. And so the invitation is not for you to, uh, to, to count yourself as, righteousness, as righteous, but, but instead to be in a transformative relationship. Now, if you already know Jesus is your Lord and Savior, then it is that hot pursuit of those things. So I'm going to ask our prayer team members, go ahead and come on up. And, and I want to invite you that, you know, in, in, at this moment, this might be a time where you simply just come and you say, listen, I've been a follower of the Lord Jesus for many years, but I recognize how I've allowed uh, kind of that point system of righteousness to interfere with my relationship with God. Uh, oftentimes, even the enemy will use those things to accuse me when I'm trying to pray with other people, when I'm trying to do the right thing in a situation. He will accuse me of mixed motives or whatever else. And so I would say to you, like, let me invite you to come and get some prayer to break that, that stronghold over your life, to silence the enemy. I'm not saying it will go away because the enemy will constantly find way, new ways to accuse you, but I want you to be able to hear his voice over that voice. And secondly, if you do not know the Lord Jesus for yourself, if you are not in a relationship with him, then I want to invite you that this whole thing is not about your ability to keep track or your ability to do all the right things or to be the right kind of person, but it really begins in the seed faith moment of where you receive, accept, uh, and, and engage in that relationship with Jesus Christ and then allow his Holy Spirit to begin the transformation process in you so that you become that child of faith and righteousness that he always wanted you to be. So let me invite you to come. Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit, and we ask even now, would you stir up in, within us a sense of expectation, a sense of, uh, of, of your presence here at work among us? Would you work in us to will and to want? Would you stir those who are afar off, O oh Lord, and do not know you, to come into the fold, to come into right relationship with you. And, but either way, Lord, would you work in us to experience the dynamic, the incredible life-changing experience of doing life with you, of knowing your love in the secret place of my heart, even right now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Hope to see you next week. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way, the most recent podcast will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.